everybody, and welcome to the Billboard Pop Shop Podcast. I'm Keith Caulfield, Senior Director of Billboard Charts. And I'm Katie Atkinson, Billboard's Deputy Editor Digital. Hi, Katie. How are you? I'm great. How about you, Keith? I am... I am all right. I'm a little sad by the news that broke today on Monday, uh, which we'll be talking about a little bit more. Yeah, I'm, I'm bummed. I'm bummed as well. We we learned about the end of a very, very, very like great, untouchable, influential group. And so we're going to talk a lot about that. Yeah. Um, well, as always, the Billboard Pop Shop podcast is your one-stop shop for all things pop on Billboard's weekly charts. In addition, you can always count on a lively discussion about the latest pop news, fun chart stats and stories, new music, and guest interviews with music stars and folks from the world of pop. Today on the show, we've got chart news about how little TJ's Calling My Phone featuring Black dials up a big debut on the Billboard Hot 100, how Taylor Swift's re-recorded Love Story makes a splashy entrance on the Hot 100, and also enters at number one on the Hot Country Songs chart, and why Swift and Dolly Parton now have something very unique in common because of Love Story's debut. Mm. Uh, Also, we'll be talking about Ariana Grande's uh, surge back up the Hot 100 with 34 plus 35, as well as how Morgan Wallen's Dangerous, the double album, is now the uh, just the third album to in the past five years to spend at least six weeks at number one on the Billboard 200 chart. And before we get there, can you think of the other two albums? You probably have listened to them. I will put it that way. I will start thinking now and get back to me. (laughs) Plus, we'll be talking all about the news that Daft Punk are breaking up after 28 years as a group. They are leaving behind quite the legacy, to say the least, especially their contributions to pop music and pop culture in general over the past three decades. So stick around for more on that later on. But first, before we get started, if you enjoy the podcast, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast provider so you won't miss an episode. And if you want to explore more podcasts from Billboard, visit billboard.com slash podcasts. All right, so let's do the chart chat. Uh, First up on the Billboard Hot 100 songs chart, Olivia Rodrigo's driver's license is number one for a sixth week in a row. Uh, In doing so, it fins off a challenge from Ariana Grande's 34 plus 35, which jumps six to two uh, following the release of the song's uh, remix music video on February 12th. 34 plus 35 post gains in airplay, sales, and streams, the three metrics that contribute to the Hot 100 each week. Uh, 34 plus 35 actually returns to its number two peak, first achieved on the January 30th dated chart when it was runner-up to, you guessed it, driver's license. Uh, If 34 plus 35 doesn't go any higher, it will become Grande's third number two peaking song. Ooh, that hurts. That hurts, Ari. Um, well, you know. <laughs> it happens. I mean, number two is very impressive. Um, is having three number two hits, uh, is that notable, Keith? I, I was kind of wondering this, too, just because I love, I, I, I always like the idea of like, oh, you know, close but no cigar, you mm-hmm. know, because especially as a chart, as a chart fan, you can kind of get caught up in the whole like number two, number 11, number 41 thing. Because yep. you weren't number one, number 10, or number 40. Um, so I quickly looked at some of the biggest artists uh, on the Hot 100. 
um, you know, that have had like tons and tons of number ones and thought, all right, well, how many of how many times did they actually hit number two and not go any higher? Turns out, actually, a lot of artists have had lots of number three or number two peaking songs. Um, Mariah Carey's had four. Um, Madonna's had six. Uh, Janet Jackson's had four. Drake's had six. Taylor Swift has had six. Justin Bieber has had four. And so on and wow. so on. So, you know, just because you were number two doesn't mean that it can't become a classic song. Mariah Carey, one of her number two hits was Can't Let Go. Yeah. So, you know. Anyway, sorry. Back on this week's Hot 100. Uh, at number three, uh, Little TJ's Calling My Phone featuring Black debuts after buzz for the song built via previews on TikTok. The song was released in full on February 12th and immediately becomes the highest charting song and first top 10 for both acts. Calling My Phone also premieres at number one on the streaming songs chart and at number one on both the Hot R&B Hip Hop Songs Chart and the Hot Rap Songs Chart. The track launches with 34 million U.S. streams earned in the week ending February 18th, along with just 3,000 downloads sold in the same week and 1.4 million in radio audience earned in the week ending February 21st, of course, all according to MRC data. Uh, sticking with the Hot 100, just outside the top 10, Taylor Swift's re-recording of her 2008 hit Love Story debuts at number 11. The original version of the song peaked at number 4 in early 2009. The new version is dubbed Love Story, Taylor's version, and is the first taste of Swift's upcoming re-recorded album Fearless, which is also subtitled Taylor's version. We talked at length about Swift re-recording her earlier catalog of music on last week's episode of the show, so of course, go check it out. Uh, and you probably figured this out by now, but re-recordings of older songs or albums are treated separately from their originals, with independent chart histories for each version. Thus, Fearless, Taylor's version, and Love Story, Taylor's version, uh, will chart separately from Swift's original 2008 recordings of the album and song, respectively. Um, all right, well... Uh, while the new love story bows at number 11 on the Hot 100, it also debuted at number one on the Hot Country Songs chart, matching the peak of the original love story in 2008. Now, Swift is one of just two acts that have hit number one on the Hot Country Songs chart with two different recordings of the same song. And the other is Dolly Parton who took I Will Always Love You to number one in 1974, and then she hit number one again with a re-recording in 1982. Katie, do you know why she re-recorded the song in 1982? I well, don't. Why did she record it? What was it? it well, I'll tell you it was for a movie. My first, that? well, I was going to say my first guess because she I wrote it about Porter Wagoner is that maybe it was you know, something to do with him, but I don't know. I well, don't so know. The, yeah, so, so it was originally, so when it, when it first came out, it was about, about him, but in 82, she re-recorded it for the movie in which she starred in alongside Burt Reynolds. The best little whorehouse in Texas. In Texas. <laughs> best little whorehouse in Texas. Did I, I say the best I wonder, little whorehouse? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wonder if she had re-recorded it yet again during all the Whitney fervor, whether she would have charted all over again on the country charts, you know? Well, she she re-recorded it again in, I think it was 1995 with Vince okay. Gill, um, and it reached the top 20 of the Hot Country Songs chart. Now, I I mean, yeah, had she re redone it in 92 or 93, like, 
But then it's like weird, like what you're going to compete with Whitney? I'm like, no, yeah, no, tacky. She was already rolling in money. Like, why <laughs> <Yeah>. bother? <laughs> Lastly, on the Billboard 200 albums chart, Morgan Wallen's Dangerous, the double album, snares a sixth total week all in a row at number one. Dangerous earned 93,000 equivalent album units in the U.S. in the week ending February 18th, and that's down 38% compared to the previous week, according to MRC data. Uh, Dangerous debuted atop the list five weeks ago on the chart dated January 23rd, and only three albums have spent at least six weeks at number one in the last five years. So that's going from basically February to February, February 2016 to February now, (laughs) 2021. Um, So the other two albums are Taylor Swift's Folklore, which had eight non-consecutive weeks at number one just last year. And Drake's Views, with 13 weeks at number one. I was going to guess Adele, but that was too long ago, huh? Adele, now if we had had said from like November of 2015 until now, Adele would have been in there because she she had a bunch of weeks at number one in like December, January, that window right Mm -hmm. there. That's why I was really specific saying the last five years. Right. So, I mean, if, if you want to go a little bit farther, throw in Adele, but that's not what the stat is, Katie. I know. I was just when in doubt, go with Adele is, is usually the trick. So, you know. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So it's um it's um it's interesting. It's interesting for many reasons to see Morgan Wallen rack up week after week at number one. Yeah. Um, I feel like we've belabored it, but it is it's wild um, to see the wild. the maintained success following the video of him using a racial slur on camera. We may very well be talking about him for a seventh week at number one next week. I don't know. It's possible. It's possible. But the biggest news over on Billboard.com this week uh, has to be that beloved French EDM duo Daft Punk have broken up. They announced the news in an explosive eight-minute video titled Epilogue that was released on Monday, February 22nd. And in the video, uh, which includes excerpts from their 2006 movie Electroma, the duo... Made up of Guy Manuel de Homem Cristo and Thomas Bogater. I worked a lot on this, you guys. They slowly walk through a windy desert scape in the video before a beeping one-minute timer begins, counting down to the self-destruction of Bogater. It's quite the video um, to say that you're breaking up, uh, to say the least. And it ends with the image of one silver and one gold hand Together, making the shape of a triangle over the years 1993 to 2021. Um, Of course, reps for the duo confirmed that this was indeed a breakup announcement. Uh, I have to say, like, I would really prefer, like, a farewell album, farewell tour uh, versus an eight-minute video just telling me, oh, by the way, your favorite album of the last decade is the final album this group will ever produce. Yeah. Is what I have to say about this. <laughs> yeah. Uh Keith, what were your thoughts when you saw this video this morning? I I um I I wonder why did they I wonder why they even bothered to make this grand statement of saying that they're breaking up. I feel like the last thing I heard about them professionally, the last headlines about them they're going to be at the Super Bowl. Rumors about whether they would be at the Super Bowl because the weekend headlined and and they have very famously collaborated with him and they there were headlines that definitively stated they would be there. 
And it makes me wonder whether there was maybe a disagreement on that front to the point where they were like, ah, well, let's just let's just call it or something. I don't know. Yeah. I guess I thought that too. Like maybe they thought, look, we're getting so much we're getting so many people asking us incessantly, like, when's the next album? Are you gonna reunite? Is there a tour coming? Will you do Coachella again? Are you gonna play glass like all these things? Are you gonna do the Super Bowl? And maybe they were just like we're tired of answering these questions. We haven't actually done anything in years and we've actually officially broken up. So stop asking. Us right. Crap. And maybe you they want to do things on their own or maybe they want to just retire or maybe this is all a big stunt and they're going to be back, you know, next stunt. year. Who knows? I go for stunt. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I don't know. I'm I not, hope, I, don't, I'm... I hope it's stunt because stunt equals they'll be back. <laughs> so, um, but we thought because we're the pop shop podcast, we should kind of look at, their impact over the years, um, not just on pop music, but pop culture and just kind of their biggest moments, because while they are obviously a core dance act and did so much for dance music starting in the 90s, uh, they have had a lot of huge mainstream pop moments. Um, so it, it's, you know, we don't just relegate them to only dance music. You know, that's they've been. They've been a lot of places over these last 30 years, almost 30. That's um, kind of crazy. Yeah. And um, I, I, I was, I was, and I'm not trying to step on you or anything, Katie, but it, it feels like there's, I'm sure someone will quickly give an example of some electronic EDM act that has transcended in the same way Daft Punk has. But it feels like if Daft Punk were, were to, were to t- time their exit any better, I don't know when you could have done it because mm. they went from a mysterious quasi underground French electronic duo where you never saw their faces. I still don't know what they look like. And that was always that was their MO from the beginning. You just you never saw them. And they were able to make music that reached people, that touched people all without trading on their faces and their imagery. It was all about the imagery that they created around the music that had nothing to do with their actual face. Um, much in the way like Sia, you know, did. Sia, later. Marshmallow, Dead Mouse, like all these people that have now taken that and run with it. Right. And they went out on top where they 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 finished their career with the Random Access Memories album. And I mean, I mean, granted, there was music after that with The Weeknd, but as Daft Punk proper, with Get Lucky, which was their their humongous, huge hit, um, you know, back in, in 2013 with Pharrell Williams, which took Daft Punk from electronic dance act to top of the pop charts. And I think it was that weird time where it was all of their older fans and newer fans and young and old and grandmas and kids all knew that song. They all knew Daft Punk. Um, yeah. And I think it was such a, it was like the perfect pop moment. And it was so, just so unexpected, but also expected at the same time. Well, they made the brilliant, the brilliantly simple decision to take electronic dance music back to its origins of disco. Like yeah. people, you know, thinking of DJs and electronic music and underground music happening in New York in the 80s and, you know, like, things like that weren't weren't drawing that straight line to disco necessarily. They were thinking like this thing was invented wholly freshly new, but in actuality 
uh, when they made this album, Random Access Memories, it is a disco album, and they they invited along the forefathers of disco to prove it. We've got Giorgio Moroder on there. We've got Nile Rodgers from Chic on there, yeah. and um, they they connected generations by doing that. What you were talking about, all of a sudden, grandmas and you know kids know the same music. It's because they took something that was super cool to young people and told people that grew up in the disco era, like this thing that seems foreign to you, it's not that foreign. It's just the new disco. And they made that with that album. And so, you know what, what a note to go out on if they do indeed go out on that note. Um, And obviously the Grammys um, the year after that, 2014, those Grammys proved uh, just what a big moment it was for them as uh, random access memories, one album of the year. Um, in addition to Best Dance Electronica Album and Best Engineered Album Non-Classical, Get Lucky won Record of the Year and uh, Best Pop Duo Group Performance. Um, and they performed very famously at that show. Keith and I were both working at that show. Uh, I actually had not started working at Billboard yet. I was working for Entertainment Weekly. I was hired at Billboard that year, but um, I was there for EW. Keith was there for Billboard. Keith, where were you during the show? I was in the press room. So I did not see it actually live in the room. And I was very sad about that. You were adjacent. You were adjacent. I was adjacent. It's not the same thing, though. Um, But you were actually in the room. um, And and I because I I, like everyone else saw like TV monitors, you know, and the, the, the view from home effectively. And I challenge anyone to find a Grammy performance that will have. Everyone from Katy Perry and Paul McCartney and Yoko Ono and Steven Tyler and Beyonce and Jay-Z, the entire crowd was standing up and dancing under a virtual disco ball. Actually, there probably was one above them to that performance. Yes. And I, I don't know what other song brought people together in that way at that show or that year. And maybe you can say, like, yes, indeed, that is what happened in the room. Oh, 100%. I actually just, I've revisited the article I wrote. Um, My assignment that year was to be in the crowd and to write about being inside. So I was able to look back. And what you said is exactly right. Um, I wrote a whole section just about, like, standing ovations for the show. And I'm like, there were, you know, this many standing ovations. But, like, this was the only performance where people got on their feet the second it started and stayed there the entire time. And, uh... Stevie Wonder performed with them, which we have not yet said, um, in addition right. to Nile Rodgers and Pharrell Williams, who were the collaborators on the album. And they, it was mostly a performance of Get Lucky, but there were tastes of other songs thrown in there, um, including Stevie Wonder's Another Star, Sheik's La Freak, um, and then little elements that Daft Punk threw into the production of Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger, Lose Yourself to Dance from the same album, and their earliest big breakthrough hit, Around the World. So... There there were so many elements thrown into this that, to your point, there was something for literally everybody happening right. on that stage. And it was a very cool performance where it also pointed to how um, Daft Punk really, who typically had been known for the kind of bleep bloops of computers, they started the performance where you couldn't even see the group. And it was just a jam session in a recording studio with live right. musicians um, and then they joined later with the um, the electronic production. So uh, they put that instrumentation front and center. Folks should um, go and find the performance if you can. Hard to uh, find. Online. It's hard to find. You there's can actually find a great, on Daily Motion. There's actually a great rehearsal video that you can watch too, like from the Grammy rehearsal oh, yeah. on Daily Motion that is worth checking out. 
So obviously the Grammys and Random Access Memories is a pretty good encapsulation of of just how massive and mainstream Daft Punk took their their dance music. But, um, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention uh, the fact that they made the the Tron Legacy soundtrack uh, back in 2010. Um, the only film score by Daft Punk, we can now say the, definitively. When- when you when you take a cutting edge EDM act, a dance act, and mir- and 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 marry it to a big Disney blockbuster film, I mean, come on, that's a big pop moment. And somehow it like works perfectly, also. Um, yes. And uh, then of course there was the work we already mentioned with the weekend um, on his 2016 album Starboy. Uh, they went all the way to number one on the Hot 100 as the featured artist on the title track from the album. And then I Feel It Coming from the same album uh, peaked at number four on the Hot 100. And those were the only two songs featuring Daft Punk on the album. So the two songs, two top five hits on the Hot 100. Good batting uh, average. Yeah. There, kids. And then they weren't featured on this one, but um, Kanye's huge hit, uh, Stronger, in 2007, uh, topped the Hot 100, and it heavily sampled uh, Daft Punk's Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger from 2001, which itself sampled Edwin Birdsong's Cola Bottle Baby from 1979. So there's another little line from disco to EDM to hip-hop, just like that. Okay. And finally, um, I'd say one of their their biggest big live moments uh, happened when they performed at Coachella for the first and only time now in 2006 uh, in the Sahara tent. They debuted their super famous pyramid stage there um, and just had a huge hand in in opening the floodgates for EDM and dance uh, for not just Coachella, but festivals in general. And... Once again, somehow, man, I do I love my job. I was there. I was in that tent. Which I did not know this until earlier today, and I lost my shiznit. <laughs> I did not know this. Not and only, what, not by the way, not only was that the year Daft Punk was there, but that was the year that Madonna played. That's Coachella. true, and she actually and played the same tent. Both. Yes, I did. Same tent, but we're focusing on Daft Punk. I mean. It was that crazy. That must have been an amazing, amazing performance. It was crazy. Um, I think just having it be a contained moment, which Coachella is known for their big like open fields and that sort of thing, and having it be in the dance tent like it was. Um, we, my friends and I, were actually at the very back of the tent. We didn't even try to bother, you know, squeezing through the big crowd because in the back there was actually room to dance, which is what you want to do to Daft Did Punk. Did you lose yourself to dance? I might have lost myself to dance before okay. they even had a song of that title. Um, but it was, uh, it was truly incredible. And I don't think I, I don't think I knew I was like, you know, a part of history in the making or anything, but then watching it back, um, in the Coachella documentary that came out, uh, last year, Coachella 20 years in the desert. Um, it was a huge portion of that, uh, of that documentary and they had footage that I had never seen, like, you know, high quality footage of that performance. Like, Oh, right. That was like a really massive moment to be at. And, uh, looking at Coachella specifically, uh, the next year, 2007 was the first year that, uh, uh, Coachella had a dance act on the main stage, which was Tiesto, um, hmm. and then they didn't even have a dance headliner at Coachella until 10 full years later, which was Calvin Harris, um, in 2016. I'm sure if Daft Punk had wanted to, they could have been that dance headliner at any moment after 2006, but we might never know if that's the case. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So there it is. Uh, you know, 
I I still kind of can't believe talking about this and talking about this was the first and last time, etc. I don't like it. Um, and so hopefully we are right that it is just an attention grabbing stunt, and they're going to be back with a farewell tour very soon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tomorrow. Yeah. But before the before this show even posts, there's going to be a new video where they're announcing a tour. Right. And then we'll have to re-record a whole new show. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. You're going to hear this um, whole thing. Um, well, we've reached the end of our, our big uh, Daft Punky show. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't talk um, about those chart stats, Keith, if you wanted to do the chart stat. We, we literally didn't mention any of this. Well, I'll quickly say, as a brief chart stat of the week, uh, staying with the Daft Punk theme, it was 20 years ago this month that one of Daft Punk's best-known songs, One More Time... One more time. Debuted on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. Uh, it was the act's second Hot 100 hit after Around the World reached number 61 in 1997. And one more time actually peaked at number 61 as well That's in so 2001. Bizarre. And um, Daft Punk would later chart three more hits, uh, which we've already named, Get Lucky and then the two weekend tracks. But uh, I just thought it was uh, an interesting note to end on that tw- it was 20 years ago uh, this month that probably maybe the second biggest known or most well-known <laughs> Daft Punk song uh, debuted on the Hot 100. So um, we could go out on, I suppose, one more time, one more time. I think we 100% should. Okay. See you guys next time. Bye. One more time. feeling so free. We're gonna celebrate, celebrate and dance so free. One more time.